Some of my favorite episodes of the Future of Agriculture podcast are when we get to talk to forward-thinking producers who seem to tie together many of the trends we often talk about in other episodes. We have one of those for you here today with Greg Bethard of High Plains Ponderosa Dairy. In today's ag world, it's all about market access. You can't just build a dairy and hope somebody buys your milk. You can't just start raising cattle and, and hope one of the packers will buy your cattle at the end. You know, you, you've got to have markets. So that's to me what this is all about is getting consistent, high quality product that a customer can depend on. And then, man, they're, they're going to want our cattle. Once they want our cattle, then I think we're in a really favorable position. Greg shares openly how they're thinking about efficiency, sustainability, and profitability on their Southwest Kansas dairy operation. Although they're operating at a commercial scale, Greg is very in tune with where consumers are driving the industry. You don't have to read the tea leaves very long to see that consumers that are buying food are showing a preference of buying food that's produced in a more carbon-friendly manner. So we're trying to um, find that spot where we're choosing to lower our carbon footprint and improve our environmental impact in a way that also is profitable for the business and makes sense and lowers our costs or increases our revenue. Greg Bethard sits down with co-host Jeanette Barnard on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to sit down with the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. And today's episode covers some really progressive concepts in modern agriculture and specifically in modern dairy, although I think there are a lot of connections to other areas of agriculture for sure. You're going to hear from someone who's looking through the lens of a producer, a business-minded producer, and how they're finding ways to lower the carbon footprint and produce both dairy and beef using the same resources, uh, how they're driving costs lower and partnering with companies like Shell to take their operation to the next level. So super excited to share this with you. But before we dive into that, I want to begin by thanking our sponsor for this quarter, which is Merck Animal Health Ventures. Uh, Merck Animal Health Ventures is a premier investor in animal ag tech. They invest in companies creating the next generation of animal identification and monitoring technology to advance animal health, as well as new business models to create value from animal data. Merck Animal Health Ventures partners with early stage technology companies to successfully scale solutions for their customers, which include livestock producers, veterinarians, and pet owners. For more information, check out the Merck Animal Health Ventures website, which we will, of course, link to in the show notes. And if you're an entrepreneur in an animal health related industry, you want to make sure you get in touch with them. Thanks so much to Merck Animal Health Ventures for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, back to today's episode with Greg Bethard, CEO of High Plains Ponderosa Dairy in Kansas. Uh, there's not a lot of context needed here from me because this is another interview conducted by my occasional co-host, Jeanette Barnard. You've heard her on the show several times before, so she probably needs no introduction, but she's a venture capital investor in animal agriculture and the writer of the extremely popular free weekly newsletter, Prime Future, link to subscribe in the show notes. Jeanette, thanks so much for coming back. Thanks so much, Tim. Always great to be here with you. Well, without giving too much away here, go ahead and share a little bit about why you're excited about today's episode with Greg Bethard. Yeah. So part of what interests me so much about Greg's story is that unlike most of the producers that we talk to, 
Greg hasn't always been in dairy management. He has kind of a non-traditional story in that he started out his career as a dairy consultant, working with a lot of dairies, and then uh, sort of mid-career transitioned into actually managing dairies. And now is the manager, you know, the CEO of this incredibly progressive, incredibly forward-thinking, incredibly well-managed dairy business. And it's just it's just cool to hear that contrast relative to what the story of a lot of producers is, which is more of a, I've been doing this my whole life and this is the next iteration of it, right? Totally. Yep, absolutely. And I don't know if you set him up for this or if it just was because you're really tuned in to what's happening in animal agriculture, but he touched on a lot of the major themes from what you write about in Prime Future. I mean, beef on dairy has been a big one. Uh, the sustainability aspect of carbon credits and things like digesters and and, and that sort of thing. Um, and a lot of interesting stuff for the future of agriculture. But uh, I guess just to kind of frame things up before we dive in, what uh, what stands out to you, you know, about Greg and about this episode? Yeah, I the biggest thing for me is that I think Greg has a really clear framework for growth of the business. And both in terms of you'll hear him talk about low cost production and what that means and what that means from a systems perspective. But then also you'll hear him talk about that framework for growth and why growth is good for attracting and retaining talent. And that's not a dimension of growth within a business that we typically hear talked about. So I think just his framework for how do we move this business forward is, is very compelling. And then the way that he bolts on those kind of future trends and how he's keeping High Plains Ponderosa right at the forefront of what's coming down the pipe and how do we get ahead of it um, around, you know, some of those really, really new and emerging opportunities for dairy producers. So that's one thing that I would definitely be listening for. Yep. I love it. I think listeners are going to connect a lot of dots in this episode with previous episodes that we've done, which I think is really, really cool. I do want to pick Jeanette's brain a little bit more on this beef on dairy aspect of what he's doing, but I'm going to wait until the end of the episode to do that. For now, I'll drop into this conversation between her and Greg Bethard, where Greg is giving some of the background into what led him to becoming the CEO of High Plains Ponderosa Dairy. Before I became a dairyman, I'd actually always wanted to be a dairyman, honest to God. My graduate school in 97 and I'd written a list of, at that time, of 10 things that I wanted to accomplish in my career and in my life. And one of them was to manage, be the managing partner of a large dairy. And and just always a dream that I had. And over the years, I, I was a nutrition and management consultant. I worked, I lived on the East Coast and worked with dairies throughout the U.S. and then all around the world. So I got to see a lot of really good dairies. And I learned a ton from really good dairymen. But I was like peripherally involved in lots of dairies, you know, just like ankle deep. And I really wanted to be neck deep in, in one dairy, just to really sink my teeth into it and the challenge. And I, I just always wanted to be a part of that. And I frankly given up on my dream at some point along the way, just very well. I had a great career and didn't have any complaints at all, living a very good life. But I still had that dream that was kind of unfulfilled. And then the opportunity came to join as CFO for John Pagel in Wisconsin, who, who had been a friend of mine for a long time. So I decided, you know, I'll, I'll go away from being a consultant and, and I'll be the CFO and kind of help manage the business, not really operations day to day, but more on the financial end. So did that for a couple of years. And, and John and I wanted to partner and build a dairy somewhere or grow a dairy somewhere. And I, that was my chance to put my money in because I was not a partner in Wisconsin. And so I was all for it. So when, when we came down here, 
John and I partnered with a family in Kansas to to grow this. It was my chance finally to put my contribution equity wise so I could have full skin in the game. But the intention wasn't for me to come down and, and run it. I was going to stay in Wisconsin and we we're going to find somebody to run it. Well, we had trouble finding somebody to run it to come to Kansas. So after traveling back and forth for several months, I just told John, I was like, hey, I want I want to go do it. And to his credit, he, he realized my passion and said, Greg, I really don't want you to go, but I, I see this is what your passion is and I'm not going to stand in your way. So I went down, came down here. And then unfortunately, uh, six months later, John got killed in a plane crash. So then suddenly I was left as the dairy person that had to figure out how to get this thing going. I had great partners here in Kansas, but they, they weren't dairy people by growing up. They were farmers and ranchers, really, really good business people. So I was surrounded by really good people. But the dairy part of things and running the dairy, I kind of had to figure out. And man, it was hard. And we had a really good team of people here, great guys and gals working with us to figure it out. But um, there's no way to really learn something than to just have no choice but to make it work. And uh, we've taken the dairy from uh, one parlor to, to multiple parlors and have continued to grow. Um, our model has always been to try to be a low-cost producer. Um, we feel like we're in a commodity business, and there's a compendium of cost of productions in any commodity industry from, from low to high, and commodity prices go up and down with the markets. But if you're on the lower end of that cost of production, we feel like that's what positions you to succeed. So our business philosophy is we, we want to take care of our cows, take care of our people, take care of our, our land and our environment and neighbors, and try to do that as low as cost we can to make us competitive that long term we can we can survive and be successful. So, OK, when you talk then about, you know, this this low cost production, this is a model that you've seen other successful farms implement. What are kind of the two to three sub bullets under that overarching philosophy? Yeah, I think the the first bullet is um, in any manufacturing industry, and that's what dairy production is. It's, it's a manufacturing industry. You got to keep your plant full and your factory full, whatever type of product, whether you're producing, you know, automobiles or you're producing milk or you're producing beef or you're producing pork or, or corn or whatever. If you've got a facility that's producing your product, I think you got to run it at capacity because I call it the big diluter. You know, we've got to dilute our fixed costs and things like labor for us are fixed costs. And there's a lot of other fixed costs. And we need to get more product out the door to dilute all those expenses out. And that's the fundamental principle to me of, of getting your cost of production lower is, you know, you try not to overspend, you know, but we still we obviously spend a lot of money. And I wouldn't say we're getting our low cost strategy by being the cheapest person on the block and, and not spending money on anything and paying low wages and and not feeding our cows right and putting up inexpensive buildings. We're not really doing that. We're trying to do it by getting reasonable productivity out of the cows and making sure our facility and pipeline are full because we, we've invested in rotary parlors, for example, to milk our cows. And I want that rotary parlor, it can spin 24 hours a day. And each spinner of that wheel is an opportunity to harvest more milk. And I want to take full advantage of every spin of that wheel to make sure that we're harvesting all the milk we can from that spin and doing that 24 hours a day. And if we do that, we'll have the volume to dilute our costs out. Love it. Love it. So you guys have also, you've focused on growth. Talk to us about how do you think about growth and what are those guardrails of when and how fast to grow? That's a really good question because growth is not for everybody. Um, we've embraced growth and as a business and, and all our, our owners and members of our organization have decided that, yeah, we really want to grow. I'm, I'm one of the few partners that makes any money from the dairy that draws a salary and makes, I make my total living from the dairy hundred percent. 
And most of my partners do not, but we're all in it to get a good return on investment. That's really what it's after. And I look at this as, hey, if we want to attract partners to invest in our business so we, we have capital to grow, then I need to deliver to them a good return on investment or we need to deliver a good return on investment. And one of the ways you do that is to grow. And, and if you're not growing, it gets harder to get a good return because your equity levels get higher. You know, if you own a lot of your business and have very little debt, it's really hard to get a great return on investment. But if you're growing all the time and fairly highly leveraged, you can get really good returns. Now, that comes with risk. Obviously, the higher the risk, you should get a better return. So there's a sweet spot in there. And I think every business and partnership group has to decide, okay, how much risk are we willing to take? How leveraged are we willing to be? And you got to find that happy spot where everybody feels comfortable. And, and, and we feel comfortable where we're at, and we found that happy spot. But we plan on continuing to grow and looking for opportunities to grow. And plus, the other thing, it infuses energy into your business when you're growing. You know, there's new projects and, and new things you're building and new technologies you're employing. And gosh, who doesn't get excited about that? You know, we're, we're not in the, in the middle of nowhere, but we're, we're on the way to it here in Kansas. There's not a lot of people out here. And it's not always an exciting place to live. And people would tell me when I moved here, like, man, you're never going to get people to come there to work. You know, how are you going to get employees? Who's going to want to move out on the prairie and live in the middle of nowhere? Well, guess what? We've been able to attract really high caliber people because when you're growing and doing things, it's cool to be a part of that. And people that want to be in the dairy business are attracted to what we're doing because it's really neat. And so that's a fun thing to be around. And I think that that culture feeds on itself. And that's what we're trying to tap into. Right. That culture kind of creates a flywheel of people who are excited, people who are smart, working on hard problems. And then that creates the success that then you can can build and grow around that, it sounds like. Yeah. Like our, our uh, COO is from Idaho. Our cattle operations manager is originally from West Virginia, but came here via Florida. Our vet, on-staff vet, is from Sri Lanka. I met him in Dubai. But we got another guy from Wisconsin. We got a number of guys from Mexico on our management team. So we've got people from all over. And I don't think anybody that works for us is from this area. Everybody's from someplace else. And so we've been able to bring in, like I said, really, really high caliber people. Incredible. So what you talked about when you're in growth mode, that means that we've got new projects that people are excited about. What are some of the projects that you're most excited about right now? We got quite a few, actually. So we uh, are building a methane digester right now with Shell Oil as our partner in that. And that's a really exciting project. So we're going to produce uh, renewable natural gas. So basically all of our cow manure will go through the digester and we'll produce methane and, and take that methane off and clean it, scrub it and compress it and, and put it in the pipeline. And so the carbon footprint impact of that is huge. You know, we uh, very much believe that if we can produce our milk and our beef at a lower carbon footprint, that we're going to have markets available to us that others may not. And we, we just think that means opportunity. You know, you, you don't have to read the tea leaves very long to see that consumers that are buying food are showing a preference of buying food that's produced in a more carbon friendly manner. And whether you agree with that politically or not really isn't the issue. The issue is if our consumers want food produced in a certain way and if we can do it, I think it'd be silly for us to, to not give our consumers what they want as long as we can do it and do it profitably. So we're trying to um, find that spot where we're choosing to lower our carbon footprint and improve our environmental impact in a way that also is profitable for the business and makes sense and lowers our costs or increases our revenue. And the digester is a perfect example of that. So that's one project that's really cool. And then we've also got a um, beef on dairy project where we're crossing 
a lot of our cows with beef animals, with beef sires, and we're creating, we think, a really quality stream of really high-quality beef that's grading really well, and the quality of the meat is fantastic. And the thing that's different about our dairy on beef is that we know everything that's happened to every animal every day of its life. From the time it was conceived until the time it's harvested, we can tell you anything that happened to the animal, all treatments, completely agent source verified. So we can tell the story on every animal and we can control the production practices. If there's an advantage for feeding animals in a certain way or rearing them in a certain manner, we've got the ability to be able to do that. And unlike traditional beef cow businesses, ranches, cow-calf operations, they tend to be kind of seasonal in their production process where they calf certain seasons. We have the same number of calves born virtually every day year-round. So we have a really consistent, steady supply, which I think differentiates us a little bit too. So that's another exciting business we're getting into as well. And then actually today, as we speak, we're opening our latest cross-ventilated freestall barn, and we're just moving cows in it today. So this is a really exciting day for all our guys and gals to say, man, we're Cool, we're moving cows into new housing conditions and a, and a new environment. Everything's shiny, spanking new before we get cow poop all over everything and dirty it up a little bit. But it's a really exciting project we're in the midst of now, too. Okay, that's awesome. Man, this is making me want to move to Kansas and be a part of this. Um, just kidding, kind of. So I, I have some follow-up questions here. Let's start with that last one, though. The cross-ventilated freestyle barn. Talk to us about what that is and how does that contrast with other options or maybe what the industry standard uh, status quo might be? Yep. There, there's a fair amount of cross-ventilated barns that have gone in the last five years. And it, it's fairly common now, particularly in this part of the world. What it is, cross-ventilated mean the air is ventilated across the barn. So one end of the barn has fans and the other end has an inlet. And air just basically sucked through. It's a negative pressure facility. And so you get all your cows inside. And so you really get to control the environment. So if you've ever been to Kansas, like you always say we've got three seasons, winter, summer, and wind. And, and, and those three seasons can all be really hard on cows. The wind is really tough on them. It blows dirt in their feet, and, and it's not comfortable to be outside. And then we get really cold weather. We get snow. We get rain and all this. So inside the barn, it's climate controlled. So it's the same all the time. So the cows really are very stress-free. Um, they get to lounge around in free stalls, and the feed's in front of them. And, you know, some days you go outside, and it's literally hell outside. It's blizzard or whatever goes on. You drive in the barn and the cows are sitting like, boy, this is a nice day and life is good. So it's a way that we can really control their environment a lot more and get more consistent results and get healthier animals because we're controlling their environment day to day. That disruption of weather when cows are in outside housing is really tough. So typical freestall barns really aren't enclosed. They'll have a roof over top, but they're really not enclosed. So they really are still exposed to the elements. So that style barn is nice also for a digester. It pairs really well with the digester because you don't have water being added to the manure in the form of rain. You don't have dirt that creates a problem with a digester. So it's really ideal. We have large vacuums that vacuum up the manure and put it right in a pit that's pumped to the digester. So the digester is really like a cow's room and you need to feed it substrate every day, in this case manure. And you want it to be the same day after day. If it's changing day to day, the output of methane is not going to be as good. So dairy manure from a cross-vented barn that's vacuumed is, is just consistent as you can get. And digester operators will typically say that dairy manure is, is one of the best substrates because the volume is there, the consistency is there, and it really, really makes for a good project. Wow. This is just such an interesting example of the, you know, the connection between this style of barn 
that will allow you to have, you know, a better environment, healthier animals, but then also that increased benefit of how it's going to work in conjunction with your manure digester system and the, uh, just that whole system there. So that flywheel you're creating there. Yes, exactly. Okay. That's super interesting. One question I want to ask before we leave this is, so when you talk about more consistent results and healthier animals, do you expect that to show up in the financial statements in the form of improved fee conversion or in the form of increased production? You know, I, I hope to have, have a little bit of both and can't prove that yet, but cause we've been in these barns a little while, but I hope to have that and, and hope to have a, a healthier cow in terms of longevity in the herd. You know, I mean, cows that are outside can do really well when the weather's good and, and, and they generally do do really well, but it's also, it's, it's hard on people. You know, when, when you're outside, our, our folks are always inside. And so when you come to work, you, you know, it, it's not like it's, it's air conditioned in the barns or it's, it's heated like your house would be in the wintertime. In the wintertime, you have a light jacket on and you're inside the barn. And so it's breeding cows or taking care of cows or, or milking or doing whatever you're doing or being out in the freestyle barn, it's comfortable. And so it's a really, a, I think, a much better environment for employees. So it's a more pleasant place to work, too. So that that helps culture. And, and I can tell you, people are in a better mood of trying to help a sick cow if they're physically comfortable themselves. If you're miserable, soaking wet or freezing cold or any of those types of things, I think the quality of work suffers. It's just harder to expect the same results when, when the person's suffering in, in some way from the elements. So I think all that kind of molds together. I don't need that to justify the cost of the barn, but I think those things are all kind of icing on the cake. And, and I really think long-term we'll be able to achieve those. Man, I love that. Love that perspective. Okay. One more question then on the methane digester. So as you're putting in the digester, you're ultimately putting out renewable natural gas. Where is that gas going? Is it going into a pipeline along with other gas from other places, or is that being used in one specific place there in the area? Yeah, so Shell is going to market the gas for us in California, and there's a pipeline four or five miles away from us that will have a direct path to California. That's the way the program is set up, and Shell's going to market all the gas for us. That's a pretty, uh, can we call that a non-traditional partnership? Yeah, it is. And, and I tell you, Shell has been just a wonderful partner. They really have. It's been great for us and hopefully it has been for them, too. And we're looking forward to a lot of years of working together. It's, you know, very professional group of people within Shell that we've worked with. And they've been very respective of our business because we're constructing the digester now. So we're in each other's stuff every day, you know, because we're on the same site. And that's been been pleasing to me because you never know with a corporation as large as Shell when you get to doing stuff, what kind of people you're dealing with. And gosh, just high quality people with a lot of integrity, hardworking so just, we don't have enough good things to say about Shell. That's that's fantastic. So as you think about the broader dairy industry, how widespread do you think that these methane digesters can be? What percentage of the industry can adopt a similar type model? You know, it's kind of hard to say percentage because, you know, the, the value in the market for this gas right now is primarily California. So, you know, when you get to the East Coast, it gets harder to do that. You're further away. And then these projects require a certain size and scale of the dairy, you know, so a, a very, very small dairy would not have enough manure to justify investment in a digester. So what a lot of dairies do is they pull together and get, you know, kind of a spoken hub or spoken wheel type of thing where you get multiple dairies sending manure to one common digester. And some people call them community digesters, you know, so I think those type of things. But I think over time, the programs that monetize the carbon value of the 
methane that you're producing, as those spread across the country, I think more and more dairies are going to have an opportunity to do it because it's really a great source of renewable fuel that's available to there. And really, what, the way to think of it is the manure on our dairy, when we put it in our lagoon, it was making methane already. And the methane was just leaving our lagoon and going up into the atmosphere. And now, instead of doing that, we, we essentially grab that methane and power a vehicle before that carbon makes its eventual trip up to the atmosphere. So we're getting a use out of it and getting a power out of it. So that's really a net savings. And that makes so much sense in so many ways that I just see this continuing to scale up. I see more states adopting these carbon credit programs like California has. There is happens to be called LCFS, but adopting those type of programs, I just do see that continuing to grow. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. Talk about seizing opportunities. So definitely you guys are capturing a hold of that opportunity, but then also the beef on dairy. So this is something that I've explored a lot via the newsletter I write, Prime Future, because I'm I'm just so fascinated by the way that this concept allows dairies to capture so much more value from the system by using those beef genetics. Um, Talk to us about what were some of those early takeaways as you started moving down the beef on dairy process? What were the challenges of finding the right cattle feeding partners or the right processors or, you know, getting your your whole beef on dairy system set up? Because as you mentioned, that that benefit of, of knowing what happens to the animal every day of its life, controlling the production practices and being able to tell the story. You know, what I've heard a lot of folks say is, in order to get the benefit from that, you you have to control it the, the entire life cycle, right? So um, talk to us about your experience getting that set up. Yeah, so we first got into this just like everybody else. I mean, we're not doing anything really different than, than many other people. We started using sex semen a number of years back, and sex semen allows us to create, you know, 90 to 95% females out of that unit of semen. And so you're left in a spot, either I'm going to create tons of extra females that I, that I don't need. And there hasn't been a good market for those, or I could potentially use some beef semen. So like everybody else, we started using some beef semen and, and had some calves born. And over time, we realized that, gee, the sex semen was working pretty well. You know, our conception rates didn't drag much. And we thought, well, we're just going to start doing more. So eventually, over a period of a year or two, we got to where we were using only sex dairy semen and only beef semen. So essentially, 40 to 45% of our cows were bred to sex dairy semen, and that created all the replacements we needed and everything else we bred to beef. And we started out just grabbing, you know, like a lot of people, we, we weren't very smart about it. We said, well, we just want some cheap semen. So we'd just go buy whatever cheap beef semen we could find. And the calves we got did okay, but they really weren't anything fantastic. Then we got hooked up with ABS, and they've got a, a program in focus is, is a program they happen to have. And we felt like they had the kind of genetics that it would take to create the animal we want. The genetics are really created for dairy on beef. And we just thought that they had a lot of history and a lot of passion about that and really liked the program. So we switched everything to ABS in focus. And once those animals came in and we started growing those animals and harvested some of them, it's like, wow, this is really a consistent product. The quality's there. So I think that genetics is a key part of making this work. And we certainly made the mistake in the beginning of just trying to use cheap semen. You know, the joke is you'd, you'd kind of empty your semen tank out with your beef program, you know, whatever, whatever junky old semen you could find that was cheap, we put in and we're now about value added. And we made the decision early on to retain ownership all the way through to the end because we wanted to understand what we have. You know, if you don't retain ownership, you never know what the product is in the end. And, and I still have a vision 
someday of having the volume to where we can go to a customer and say, hey, we've got so many head a week and we'll have them every week and they're all the same and they're all consistent and it's really high quality. And, and like you said, we can tell the story and control the practices, how we feed and manage them. We can do all those things. And once we do that, again, I'm not after premiums for this kind of stuff. I'm after market access. In today's ag world, it's all about market access. You can't just build a dairy and hope somebody buys your milk. You can't just start raising cattle and, and hope one of the packers will buy your cattle at the end. You know, you, you've got to have markets. So that's to me what this is all about is getting consistent, high quality product that a packer can depend on that a customer can depend on. And then, man, they're, they're going to want our cattle. Once they want our cattle, then I think we're in a really favorable position. Amazing. So talk to us a little bit about that then. When you guys started the dairy and started to grow the dairy business, what was the market that you cultivated for the milk? So we've been with DFA since the beginning. Uh, DFA's Dairy Farmers are American. It's a co-op that we're part of. But going forward, we've not been able to grow within DFA anymore because there's just been too much milk in the region. But we've recently had a new processor uh, look to come to the area and, and we're hoping to have a contract with them to be able to grow. So we're, we're branching out a little bit and maybe going to sell our milk to different people to just to be able to expand our markets. Because, again, we you just can't get a milk contract today and you can't build a dairy and expect somebody to buy your milk. It's just a completely different scenario than we were five and 10 years ago, basically, because we've got more milk than we've got processing. And particularly in our region, you know, any milk that we can't process here, we got to move out of the region or put it into a lower value product like powder that can be stored and used later. So we need to have new processing come in. So that, that's what we're after is trying to grow in that fashion. Awesome. Talk to us a little bit about how did you guys, how did you find the model? You talked about that your goal is to be the low cost producer, but it sounds like, it sounds like what you're interested in is that, that combination of high quality in terms of how you operate the business and low cost. And, and how did you get, arrive at that? How did you arrive at that model? I had the good fortune of consulting with a lot of really good businesses. And over time, I'd start to notice attributes of businesses that I thought were more successful and those that weren't. And the low-cost model that we've come to adopt, it's kind of like a hybrid model, is really from watching other people and seeing what they've done and trying to copy. You know, we're not reinventing the wheel here or coming up with all new things every day, really just trying to emulate what other people have done so well. And like I said, I was so fortunate that I got exposed to some of the best dairymen all around the world. A lot of days I think like, gee, I wish I would have become a dairyman at a younger age, you know, because right now I feel like almost I'm running out of time because I'm not spring chicken anymore. And I wish I'd started this 25 years earlier. But then I was like, now I, I don't wish I started early because I wouldn't give up all the things I learned and all the people I met and all the great dairy businesses that I got to be a part of that I learned so much from that. That's, I think, been a huge part of what we've accomplished here. So I wouldn't change any of that for the world. I, I love that. I love that perspective. As CEO, what percentage of your time do you spend on operations of the business, thinking about the commercial side of the organization versus thinking about growth in the future? You know, I, I read a book uh, probably three years ago. Our, our board actually read the book and it was called No Man's Land. And, and that book was about businesses are heading into a growth period and and what things do you need to put in place before the growth period? And the overwhelming advice of the author was you need to get high level people in your organization before you start an ambitious growth phase and get the top people in first and then, and then let them hire the people under you. So we did that and we, we brought in some really good people. 
I told you, Jordan Leake, our, our COO from Idaho, and Chris Yone and Manuel Rodriguez and Brandon Greep. I brought in some just top quality people that run the operation. So I, I probably spend maybe 20, 25% of my time on operations and probably 20, 30% of my time on, on the business and, and probably the rest of the time on growth right now. You know, so I'm prioritizing a lot of time. And I, I believe very strongly in the uh, Warren Buffett theory of, of how to do things and that he reads and reads and reads. And, and I try to devote a certain amount of time every day to read, just read everything I can get my hands on about markets and, and about new ideas and new interests. I like to read about things outside of our industry. Just I think that really helps me a lot to get focused on, on new ideas and, and new possibilities. And then I like to take dairy trips around the world to see different dairy industries and different parts of the world. I've always consulted overseas, but I like the chance to go uh, when I can, because every time I come back from a trip overseas visiting dairy farmers at their dairies, I just come back with about a thousand ideas. It's just when you're in your own situation every day, it's really hard sometimes to see the possibilities because you're so caught up in the day to day that you just don't see the opportunities that are maybe right in front of you. And for me, anyways, when I step away and get away, suddenly I'm seeing opportunities that I didn't see before. And that's invaluable. So I, I, you know, I also had a good piece of advice from a friend of mine that first summer we were struggling. He came to visit me, uh, another fellow dairyman, and he saw that I was very tired and overworked. And I thought the way to fix our problems on a dairy was to work harder and work more hours. And he said to me, he's like, you know, Greg, it, it's really hard to lead people when you're tired. And I took that to heart. So I owe it to all my colleagues here and all my coworkers and to this business to show up every morning with a good night's sleep, ready to go to work with a fresh mind and a fresh attitude. And so all those things are, I think, a part of my day-to-day to help allow me to focus on growth and opportunities and, and not get negative. And because it's really easy to get negative some days and kind of fall down in the hole of negativity and get caught up in that. And so they're my methods anyways for trying to not to fall in that hole. Granted, some days you'll come here, you'll find me in, in a foul mood like anybody else. But uh, I'm trying to keep myself out of that and keep myself focused on growth and opportunities because you never know what they're, they're everywhere out here. If you just sit around and look, it's amazing how many opportunities are out here. Man. Okay. This is, this is awesome. There's so much wisdom in what you just said that I just, <laughs> I want to remember that verbatim, um, all of that gold there. So let me ask you this question then, given how growth oriented, future oriented you are, talk to me about what does the dairy look like, your business look like in five, 10, 20 years? What's the time horizon that you're thinking on and, and what does the business look like down the road? Yep. So in five years, we'll be, I think we'll be double what we are today or probably two and a half X of what we are today. I think we've got some things in place to make that happen. After that, I don't know what the opportunities will be. So, you know, we've we've identified as a board and, and as an ownership group that we are interested in partnerships. Shell is a perfect example of that, that we value partnerships. We, we, we value those relationships. So I try when I can to, to build relationships with people because you never know what kind of opportunities are going to come from that. And, and I think people are very interested in and working together to solve problems and create opportunities. I think this beef on dairy thing, it's got opportunity written all over it. We just got to figure out where it is and what it is and how to harvest it because it's new. Anytime something's new, that's where the opportunity is. If it's been done for a hundred years and it's streamlined and everybody's got to perfect it, I'm questioning how much opportunity there is. So I can't tell you what the opportunities are coming exactly. You know, I think this carbon credit 
situation and carbon scoring and, and sustainability and all that, I think there's opportunity there without a doubt. And we're trying to pursue that. But I think there's going to be more that we, we don't even realize yet. I think our opportunity to grow is going to continue to be there, too, that I, I do think we'll have the opportunity to continue to, to milk more cows. And, and it may require us moving someplace else a little bit. But I think at some point we're going to want to do that. Awesome. Okay, this is such an energizing uh, note to end on then. Greg, thanks so much for for sharing your insights and for the discussion today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Well, huge thank you to Greg Bethard for being on the show. And Jeanette, thank you to you for bringing this story to us. I'm curious to get your perspective after your talk with Greg. What are you going to take away from, from that conversation? So my favorite nugget from Greg actually was something that didn't make it into the podcast itself because there was just so many good nuggets that Greg gave us and, and, and you had to edit somewhere. But um, when Greg and I were first starting the conversation and I asked him about that transition from being a consultant to being the CEO of a, of a growing organization uh, and what that transition was like. And he said, you know, what I learned is that I've got to put my boots on and go to work every morning. And he said, when we were first starting up, everything was going wrong as we were trying to get the facility up and going and get cows in. And he said, you know, I'd, I'd get beat up all day and work long hours and I'd go home defeated and I'd be asking myself, am I capable? Am I up to the task? All of these imposter syndrome questions that I think most of us can relate to. Uh, and then he said, you know, what I what I learned is you've got to get a good night's sleep so that you can wake up every morning and go back out to the barn and have a good attitude and if you do that for enough days in a row, you'll get it figured out. And I just love that. And I, I feel like that is so um, just encompassing of what we often see with producers like this. They just have a perseverance and an ability to find, you know, kind of that renewed energy and renewed fresh attitude. And so I, I, I just love the way Greg framed that. Totally. No, that's awesome. And one thing in particular that stood out to me was the fact that they are pursuing this beef on dairy thing. And this is actually something that I first heard from you, which is they're using uh, beef animals. They're giving birth to beef animals rather than dairy animals using the latest technology and genetics uh, that actually has some major benefits, both in productivity and sustainability. Why don't you just go ahead and describe what beef on dairy consists of so that people can really start to grasp this concept? So Greg talks about this idea of beef on dairy. And, you know, this is something that I've I've explored quite a bit in Prime Future because it is such a it has the potential to be such a game changing dynamic in the U.S. industry where beef and dairy are very separate industries. We think of those as entirely separate supply chains, even though a lot of dairy calves are fed out in feed yards and go into the beef supply chain. Right. But, but we still think of those as very distinct. And what Greg is talking about the whole premise is unlocked and enabled by advances around genetic technology. So the rise of sexed semen, what that allows producers like Greg to do is to use that sex semen for really high quality dairy genetics and use that dairy semen on their highest quality heifers and cows. That 30 to 40% of their highest quality animals that are going to be bred to dairy genetics that's what's going to produce their replacement heifers, right? So now we have the remainder of the herd that we can breed to beef genetics. And then we're going to get an animal, an offspring that looks more like a beef animal than it does a dairy animal. And there's a whole science and a whole art that's being developed around 
the right combinations of beef and dairy genetics in order to maximize the value of that offspring. But what we're seeing is, you know, producers that now are saying, okay, let me take that offspring that looks like a beef animal and instead of selling it at a day old or three days old or early in its life, let me actually hang on to it. And I'm going to own that animal all the way through feeding and finishing the animal and selling it to the packer. I've now created a significant value stream out of my dairy herd as a result of being able to use that sex semen on the highest quality portion of my cows to get my replacement heifers. Now I have this portion of my herd that's delivering this just super high quality beef looking, beef acting, um, beef type carcass offspring. Cool. All right. Well, Jeanette, I can't thank you enough for doing these episodes. It really has been a delight for me. Every single one of them has been good. And you're welcome back anytime you want to share some more stories, especially these kind of animal ag innovation types and love to bring a producer on. I want to do more of that. Um, If anyone out there has any recommendations, send them my way for a producer that's thinking about their business differently and in a really forward thinking way. I've I've really enjoyed those episodes that we've done um, on that topic here lately. So Jeanette, thank you again. And uh, we will call it an episode. Thanks so much, Tim. And thank all of you for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. 